G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A significant time in the Middle East and it is good as we do on a Tuesday to get some insights into how breaking news headlines are coming out of the Middle East and especially as they impact on the nation of Israel. Ron Ross back with us. Hello Ron, welcome back to 2020. Thanks Neil. Ron, let's start with a very significant headline from overnight where Syria's Bashar al-Assad is ready to discuss Golan demilitarization after Israel declared it won't tolerate any Iranian presence there. Uh, this is very interesting, Neil. During his visit to Sochi last week, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad conveyed to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a message that Damascus was ready to discuss the disarmament of the Golan Heights up to 40 kilometres from the separation line and to examine autonomy for the Kurds and Druze in the country as part of a comprehensive agreement that would leave the current Syrian regime in power, according to a Kuwaiti uh, newspaper. Now, it's only a couple of days ago that Benjamin Netanyahu said he would not tolerate any Iranian presence near the border. According to the press report, a Western source also told the newspaper that in Putin's telephone conversation with Netanyahu after the meeting, the latter assured his Russian counterpart he was ready to discuss Assad's demands, but he would not tolerate Iran's presence nearby. The source also said that a senior Israeli official recently said Israel is certain that Assad is to be the last Alawite president in Syria. The source added that he expects the Syrian crisis to increase after the ISIS defeat, especially if Tehran continues to play with fire. It's a, they're eyeballing one another. And just before we move on from this story, Ron, uh, the significance here, of course, is that Iran, sworn enemies of Israel, would like to see Israel wiped off the face of the map. And if they did have a foothold, military bases there in Syria, that would put them in easy striking distance, wouldn't it? Oh, it would indeed. And uh, just as a sideline, uh, the uh, they're calling the new Saudi Arabian leader uh, Salman, the superstar Saudi. He's just had a meeting with 40 Arab nations and uh, their whole uh, decision was to wipe out terrorism. And, uh, you know, that's aimed at Iran and any Iran-sponsored terror group. Uh, but they mean business and it could erupt any time. Okay, more headlines are on. Uh, let's move a little to the south. Uh, Egypt, and there's been some cooperation there from Israel, and that's set to increase after that recent Sinai tragedy involving ISIS. Yeah, and I've just been watching the report that says that uh, al-Sisi being a, an army general, when he takes on terrorism, uh, resorts to military tactics, but he's really up against a terrorism that's an insurgency. And after terrorists killed more than 300 people during prayers at a mosque in the Sinai Peninsula, 
Leading Israeli experts say weakness in the Arab country's counterterrorism operation will lead to increased Israeli-Egyptian security. The terror attack, which occurred at the Al-Rada Mosque in the northern Sinai town of Bir al-Abad, was one of the deadliest in recent memory in Egypt. Despite ongoing efforts to secure the Sinai by Egypt's military, Islamic State-affiliated terrorists have waged an insurgency in the region, perpetrating a succession of deadly attacks on Egypt's security forces and civilians. The attack brings Israel and Egypt closer together, said Professor Joshua Teitelbaum, a senior research fellow at Bar-Ilan University's Begum Sadat Center. Egypt and Israel have a common goal in crushing terror groups operating in the Sinai for two reasons, Teitelbaum said. He said Sinai-based terrorists affiliated with Islamic State have attacked Israel in the past, mostly with mortar or rocket fire to Elat. Israel also cares about the security of the Egyptian regime and views it as a bulwark of pragmatic, stable countries in the region, along with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Jordan, and so Israel will do what it can to help Egyptian security. That will be a very interesting uh, amalgamation. It will. Ron, let's get some focus on the Israeli-Palestinian relationship here because we know that those settlements, Jewish settlements in the West Bank have been very contentious, but now the United States and Israel in a race to prevent publication of a UN blacklist of Israeli settlements. Yeah, about 100 companies operating in Judea, Samaria and eastern Jerusalem, as well as some 50 international companies have received letters warning that they will be on a United Nations blacklist. Uh, Some of those are U.S. companies, by the way. Weeks ahead of the expected completion of a U.N. database of companies that operate in Israeli communities in Judea and Samaria, Israel and the Trump administration are working feverishly to prevent its publication. While Israel is usually quick to brush off U.N. criticism, Officials say they're taking the so-called blacklist seriously, fearing its publication could have devastating consequences by driving companies away, deterring others from coming, and prompting investors to dump shares in Israeli firms. Dozens of major Israeli companies, as well as multinationals that do business in Israel, are expected to appear on the list. We will do everything we can to ensure that this list does not see the light of day, said Israel's UN ambassador, Danny Danon. The UN's top human rights body, the Human Rights Council, ordered the compilation of the database in March 2016. The international community overwhelmingly considers the settlements built on occupied land claimed by the Palestinians for a future state to be illegal. So uh, there's a bit of push and shove going on. Mm-hmm. A little bit of egg on someone's face, Ron, with another headline. 22,000 Ukrainian Georgian refugees have entered Israel, but it's via an internet scam. How does that one unfold? Yeah, this is exposed quite a bit. As the government continues to demonise the 38,000 African asylum seekers in Israel who fled war-torn Sudan and Eritrea, A recent report claims that more than 22,000 Ukrainian and Georgian refugees have fraudulently entered the country through human trafficking scams. 
The report titled Through Hidden Corridors was compiled by the African Advocacy uh, NGO Hotline for Refugees and Migrants. Yesterday, Siegel Rosen, Public Policy Director for the NGO, said companies are charging large fees to Ukrainian and Georgian asylum seekers via websites to arrange safe passage to Israel without labelling infiltrators like their African counterparts. What is happening is that Ukrainian and Georgian citizens are arriving as a result of publications on the internet in their language, promising them the opportunity to get work permits easily in Israel for fees of thousands of shekels. Since 2011, Ukrainian citizens have been exempt from submitting a prior request for an entry visa to Israel, which means they can enter the country with relative ease. Once applicants bypassed border officials at Ben-Gurion, Rosen said the companies falsely guarantee they'll be able to obtain refugee status pending approval of their asylum request, allowing them to work full-time. However, in 2016 alone, entry was refused to 5,700 Ukrainian citizens and 3,500 Georgians. Now there's a great investigation underway, as we've seen huge queues in uh, Tel Aviv as 22,000 try to get refugee status. Uh, it's, it's a terrible dilemma. Well, these refugee challenges are far from over. Uh, come back to Iran, Ron. There's another headline, and we know that Iran, having its Islamic oversight uh, government, uh, there's interest there about a Christian convert uh, who has lost his appeal against a 10-year prison sentence because he's been involved in missionary activities. Yeah, this is Nasser Navad Goltapay, and he was sentenced in May alongside three Azerbaijanis. All four men were given 10-year sentences for missionary activity and actions against national security in Iran. However, the three Azerbaijanis, Elder Gurbanov, Yusuf Fahadov, and Baram Nazibov, were allowed to leave Iran in November and are unlikely to be forced to return, despite their representatives also failing to overturn their verdicts during the 12th November hearing. In recent months, a number of Christians were handed down sentences of between 10 and 15 years, charged with offences such as acting against national security. The four men were arrested in June 2016 after security agents raided a wedding party in Tehran. They spent four months in prison, but were then released on bail after which the Azerbaijanis went home. News of their sentencing came during the same week that four other Iranian Christians received lengthy jail terms for offences relating to evangelism. Christians have been sentenced to long prison terms in Iran, according to the advocacy group Article 18. The growing community of Christian converts are not permitted to attend recognized churches and have to gather for worship in secret house churches and risk arrest and imprisonment. In 2016, over 193 Christians were arrested for attending these prayer meetings and Bible studies in house churches. And I just want to emphasize we should praise God for the circumstances we have as Christians in Australia and intercede for those overseas who don't have that privilege. 
Certainly not easy being a Christian in Iran. Not easy being a Christian either in Saudi Arabia, Ron, but uh, there is a headline and I imagine this is to do with some of the relaxation that's come in Saudi Arabia, but the publication Jews News is asking, is the door opening for Christianity in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, they said stunning political developments in Saudi Arabia have some wondering if the strict Muslim-ruled kingdom could become more tolerant of Christianity. Now, there's not one church in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has said he intends to return Saudi Arabia to moderate Islam and open the country to all faiths. As part of his reform drive, dozens of officials, including 11 princes, have been arrested on corruption charges. The percentage of Saudi Arabian citizens who are Christians today is officially zero because conversion from Islam to Christianity has long been punishable by death. But it's estimated that between 4 and 5% of the population is Christian, mostly with guest workers who are not allowed to worship openly. Some are hopeful that change is coming. The days of a religious monopoly in Saudi Arabia are over, says Christian Palestinian journalist Daoud Khattab for Christianity Today. He said, no more pushing Islam down everyone's throat. And we may pray that that is correct. Well, it's a very good news update from overnight, Ron. We talk about breaking news. We certainly cram a lot into a short segment for a Tuesday. And thanks so much for your attention to all the details, monitoring everything as it's happening and those news stories uh, that are hitting the headlines. Thanks so much for being a part of 2020 again today. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.